And uh, let's take our Bibles, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. I encourage you to take out your notes as well. 2 Peter chapter 2. These are challenging uh, verses. It's a challenging book. It brings me no joy to have to bring these things to you, but it's important. And next week, I just was given some information yesterday. Next week, we're going to talk about very personally in the evangelical world, some of the things that uh, the state of theology and the way we're drifting away from the orthodox teaching of God's word. But it is a frightening fact that many people who are now zealous members of cults were one time attending evangelical churches. They professed to believe the Christian gospel. And many current Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons were people who used to go to church, but for whatever reason, left the church and stayed home. And I've met many, many people, many backslidden Baptists who've become Jehovah's Witnesses because they've stayed home and then somebody knocked on their door and talked to them about the watchtower and led them into the Jehovah's Witness uh, cult and Mormons as well. These people that we know about participate in communion service. They claim to receive and trust in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They even recited the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. Yet today, these people will tell you that they feel free, that they've been liberated from the Christian faith. At the same time, you'll meet people who have rejected all religious faith and now profess to enjoy a new freedom. They say, I used to believe in that stuff. They will boldly confess, but I don't believe it anymore. I've got something better, and I feel free for the first time in my life. Freedom is a concept that's very important in today's world, yet not everybody really understands what the word freedom means. In fact, everybody from communist people to those involved in sexualization of our culture seems to have their own definition of freedom. Nobody is completely free in the sense of having the ability and the opportunity to do what he or she wants to do. For that matter, doing what you please is not freedom. It's the worst kind of bondage. Since this is part two of the short sermon series in 2 Peter 2, let's review as we build the context in for what we're going to see today. Look back to last week's main points of the message. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through the first part of verse 13, we talked about how false teachers are filled with pride. Filled with pride. That's a strong characteristic of these folks. False teachers are bold in their practice of sin, as we saw in verses 13 through 14. And false teachers are focused on their own personal gain. This takes us to our message today, and let's start with reading the scriptures that we will cover this morning. So I have, hope you have your Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. Peter says in verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." Verse 20, for if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness 
then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we come, and just as loving parents, you help us to be able to warm the body against things that will cause harm, heartache, frustration, discouragement by falling into false teachers. Just like parents, we warn our kids against crossing the street without looking and lots of other things because we care about them. We want to protect them. And Lord, help us as leaders of this church to protect the flock. We take that seriously. And help us all to have our Holy Spirit antennas up to be able to discern fiction from truth as we hear the teachings of your word in so many places. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's message, the first blank you see, false teachers offer fictitious freedom. Their freedom is fiction. In verses 2, 10 through 16 this chapter, Peter laid out the character qualities of a false teacher. But in the remaining verses that we're going to cover today, he shares the destructive ways of the influence of false teachers on others. He starts with false promises. False promises. Look back at 2 Peter 2, 17 through 18. It says, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. We see under this point meaningless words. Meaningless words. Waterless springs, he says. Parched lives. Spiritual offers to meet needs, but unable to do that in a righteous way. Jesus The antithesis of this is that Jesus talks about flowing spring that's available to all true Christ followers when we receive that divine nature, that Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter 1.4 that he talks about when we come to faith in Christ, we have the resources, we have the means to satisfy all of our needs emotionally, physically, spiritually, in all ways. In John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus, encountering the woman at the well, says, But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I envision this overflowing well of water that never runs out, and the overflow comes down to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And like he says in Philippians 4.19, he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will bring satisfaction to our soul. In Revelation 7.17, says, For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He talks about there in 2 Peter chapter 2, mists driven by a storm. You know, when we look off to the west, and many times the storms come from the west here, you see those dark clouds coming and heading our way. And it's announcing that a storm is coming. And it may bring wind and noise and motion and even thunder and lightning, but sometimes all we get 
as spits of water or no rain at all. That's how he's describing these false teachers. The false teacher's words are like clouds going over a lake or an ocean, looking like it's going to storm, forming a squall, but only spits of water come out of them. False teachers promise things that they cannot provide because they don't have anything to give. Many people follow false teachers because they have unfulfilled areas in their life and they're looking for satisfaction and contentment. But it's natural for us to want our needs and our desires satisfied. But we have to find the right source. I like what Augustine said. He said this, and you've heard it before. Thou hast made us for thyself, God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It is God and God alone that can satisfy and meet all your needs, not your spouse, not your 401k, not your great vehicle that you may drive around in, all these things. They're nice to have and are okay to have, and we can enjoy them, but that's not our source of satisfaction and comfort in our lives. False teachers, they peddle to the masses sins that enslave, and just as a reminder of what he said before, money is one of their goals, coveting others' things, wanting wealth for themselves, lust, pride. These are the main things that these false teachers are truly after if you dig down to the core of their motives. And notice as he talks about throughout this book that the false teacher's faith is eternity in hell with endless tormenting and suffering. He says the gloom of utter darkness is reserved for them. And so should it be. The most damning thing a false teacher can do is to lead others to hell, separated from God for all of eternity. In Matthew 13, 42, he says this, Jesus did, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. It's hard for us to imagine. It's sobering thought. Then he talks about their manifest immoral behavior. Their manifest immoral behavior. The false teachers like to prey on new converts or recent people who, quote, professed, end of quote, their faith in Christ. These people are vulnerable. They don't know any better, but to follow these false teachers. And these false teachers attract followers because they're good orators. They have a winsome personality. They have new, exciting insights and teachings that no one has ever heard or seen before. Jude 1.13 describes them as this, wild waves of the sea, casting up from the foam of their own shame. They're like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's look at a moment, the ministry style of false teachers and the style of the things that they do. First of all, and this isn't on the screen, it'll be on the screen, but it's not in your notes, I should say. False teachers rule by being a dictator. They don't like to be challenged in their authority. Many times they have people around them that just agree with them and support them. There's nobody to be uh, accountable to that speaks opposite or gives uh, differing viewpoints. They rule churches in a domineering fashion and most lack formal theological training. Jeremiah 5.31 says, The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. Domineering. Number two, false teachers minister in a man-centered way. 
They pander to people, giving them what they want in their teaching and what they will accept. In 2 Timothy 4.3, in Paul's final writing, to warn Timothy and others of what was going to happen after he was executed, he said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, wanting to hear something new, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They have an idea, they have a thought, and they go looking on the internet or wherever to find somebody who preaches what they want to hear to fulfill what they think is right. Number three, false teachers preach their own visions. Watch out when a teacher says to you, God told me this. I usually run when I hear that, okay? But you better make sure that when they say that, that it matches up with the word of God, okay? Just an example, uh, as I was between churches before coming here, I had a wonderful, charismatic friend of mine. He was the custodian at the Christian school where my wife was. And James was a wonderful guy, and he prayed over me, and God revealed to him that I was going to be a mega church pastor in Las Vegas. <laughs> I think I'm in Iowa, so anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying, watch out. Some of these folks will mix health, predictions of the future, wealth, healing, and miracles. They preach syrupy deceptions that appeal to their followers' fleshly appetites. True teachers of the Word of God focus on living lives of holiness. They talk about man's sinful condition and how desperate men and women are as a result of their sin and that we need a Savior and we need to repent and turn away from our sin. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16 Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. I want to give you a few examples. I usually don't call out names of people, but here's a pretty stark example of false teaching. Bill Johnson and Benny Johnson are co-pastors of the Bethel Church in Redding, California. And so Benny Johnson, the wife of Bill Johnson, this church teaches a thing called grave soaking or grave sucking. That when someone who's a believer has died and God had anointed them and had these special spiritual gifts, they believe that you can go out and lay on the grave and pray and ask God to put that anointing on you as well. Bethel Church claims to frequently encounter unexplained phenomenon. Sometimes during their service, gold dust or angel feathers will fall down, and they say it's not something planned, it just merely happens. Sometimes the pastor will point out a glory cloud above the audience, one much like the Shekinah glory cloud that Moses encountered at the tabernacle. These are things that you don't see anywhere in Scripture. I'll give you another example. On September 19th, a secular cable channel anchor had this to say about Jesus in the Bible. And I'm not going to give you this person's name because if I did, that would automatically bring out some biases. I just want you to hear what he has to say or this person. Let me just say as a Southern Baptist that grew up reading the Bible, maybe a backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible, Jesus never once talked about abortion, never once. And it was happening back in ancient times. But he never once mentioned it. And for people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. If you don't believe me, if that makes you angry, 
Why don't you do something you haven't done in a long time? Open the Bible, open the New Testament, read the red letters, the words that Jesus said. You won't see Jesus talking about abortion there. This person goes on to say, and yet there are people who are using Jesus as a shield to make 10-year-old rape girls go through a living and breathing hell here on earth. They've also conveniently overlooked the parts of the New Testament where Jesus talks about taking care of the needy, taking care of those who are helpless, who live a hopeless life, because they believe, these state legislators believe, that life begins at fertilization and ends at childbirth. End of quote. Here's an argument from silence without looking at the entire context of the Bible and conveniently forgetting that Jesus over and over quoted from the law and the prophets and believed that the Old Testament was scripture and the word of God where it speaks to not killing another human being and that a baby is a human being made in the image of God, Psalm 139 and many other places we could point to. It's true, this person brought out, that we need to care for the needs of those in our society that are down and out, that we can agree on. But impugning those who believe life begins at conception and arguing that abortion is okay because Jesus did not speak specifically to the issue is how many in the media and politics and culture use the Bible as a tool to support their view. Oftentimes they have to take it out of full context to make their point. So be discerning. Be discerning when the entertainers and the athletes and politicians use the Bible. Make sure it's in the context of what the Bible says. Number four, false teachers treat the historic orthodox scripture-based interpretations of the Bible and doctrines that have withstood the test of time with contempt. With contempt. In Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We prefer a new way. We prefer to create a better way. Instead of the way that's sure, the way that's going to provide a blessing in your life, that's what Jeremiah is pointing out. These false teachers always have a new way, a private way to interpret the Bible, a new approach to translation. Back to Bethel Church in California, they've recently put out uh, a translation of the Bible called the Passion Translation. And Andrew Sheed reviewed the Bible, and he said this, all interest in textual accuracy, playing fast and loose with the original languages, and inserting so much new material into the text that it's at least 50% longer than the original. The result is a strongly sectarian translation that no longer counts as scripture, by masquerading as a Bible. It threatens to bind entire churches in thrall to a false God. Folks, remember. Remember what seminary professors have said, whether at my seminary or Dallas or many others. If it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. As I've said before, we are preaching on the shoulders of those who've gone before for us. We're building on those foundations. The entire Bible has been preached over and over and over for centuries. We've had incredible theologians and scholars build on these doctrines that are based in scripture and been held by the church for centuries. It's gone through councils. It's been challenged by many false teachings. And what's amazing to me, what you're seeing now, the false teachings that are coming back to us are things that occurred all the way back to 
the beginnings of the new church, Marcionism, Pelagianism. I could go on and on as you see some of the things just coming back in new forms, new technology, the same things. And these false teachers promote their private interpretation in opposition many times to the orthodox, historical, scripture-based approach to studying scriptures. I'll give you one more example. This is a little deeper. There's a, a, new, a thing called The New Perspective on Paul by E.P. Sanders and James Dunn. It came out in 1982, but it's now uh, being propagated even more in evangelical circles today. N.T. Wright, who is a scholar out of England, espouses to this view of Paul's writings. The New Perspective on Paul is a major scholarly shift that began in the 80s argues that the Jewish context of the New Testament has been wrongly understood and that this misunderstanding has led to errors in the traditional Protestant understanding of justification. According to a new perspective, the Jewish systems of salvation were not based on works righteousness, but rather on the belief that one enters into the people of God, salvation by grace. But here's the key. They stay in there. They stay in the faith through obedience to the covenant. Contrary to Protestant belief, following the law was not a way of entering the covenant, but of staying within it, keeping your salvation by following circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath laws, boundary markers to be practiced by Messianic Jews to stay in the faith. Just an example. Number five, false teachers create an emotional attachment from the people who follow them. They enjoy a personal relationship, as we said. They're very charismatic. They have a winsome personality. False teachers use proper theological terms, but change the definitions of the words. They change the definitions. And so when you hear these people talk, you need to make sure that you look at their other writings to completely understand what they're saying when they say these words. Now, I don't talk much about my education and my degrees and those things. I don't think it's that important. What we try to do is to understand scholarly things. And as a pastor, we try to bring the cookies down to the lower shelf so the fifth and sixth graders can understand what we're talking about. But just so you know, I went to seminary. Here's a few things that uh, you know, we think about. We, always, we talk about in Philippians 2, the hypostatic union of Christ. Well, what is that? That means that Jesus is both God and man at the same time. What about the kenosis theory? How many people know what the kenosis theory is? Hey, we got a couple people, good. Philippians 2, it talks about Jesus emptied himself out. He set aside his attributes of God temporarily to identify with man and walk here on earth. And he did pick them up occasionally when he healed people and raised the dead. Incarnation, we hear that word a lot at Christmas, wrapping ourselves himself, Jesus did, in human flesh. And a word Tony Evans talked about a couple years ago that I never heard of in all my studies, intersectional theology. Understanding the culture that you're in and contextualizing the gospel and the application of scripture to best communicate to that culture. We're not here to impress you with fancy words. We're here to bring you the knowledge at a level you can understand, that you can apply to your life. Number seven, false teachers attack historical, orthodox, scripture-based doctrines using their opinions with little or no sources to back up their claims. This one probably angers me the most, frustrates me the most because I read their attacks and I'm open to listening to what they have to say. Maybe there is 
some weaknesses. There are some things that need to be addressed. But then you give me no Bible. You give me no sources of extra biblical literature to support your attack. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing when they're vague and when they are not clear and it's not based with sources. So our application is this. Teachers who are headed for hell are working to take as many with them as they can. Of course, they don't overtly say that. Some may not even think that that's what they're doing. But that's what false teachers are all about. False teachers are good at being counterfeit Christians, which leads us to our next point. They are fake Christians. Fake Christians. Look what Peter, 2 Peter 2.19 says. They promise their followers freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promise freedom. They promise freedom. The false teachers at times promise freedom from moral restraints. They promise liberation. They promise purpose, prosperity, peace, and happiness. These false teachers cannot set someone free because they themselves are enslaved by sin. We are all in process in our spiritual journey and we're dealing with some sort of sin or baggage in our lives, but we are not willingly slaves to sin. As believers, we are either slaves to sin or slaves to Christ through the Spirit of God. And it always begs the question each morning when I wake up, whose servant am I? Who am I going to serve today, myself, or am I going to serve Christ? Romans 6.16, Paul states this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You and I, we have to avoid, as believers, getting caught up in these false teachings and hardening our hearts towards sin. And there's no neutrality. You're either going one way or the other in who you are a servant to. In Hebrews 3.13, the writer gives us this warning, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The false teachers boast about bringing freedom to their followers by telling lies. Jesus brings his followers freedom through the truth. The world's freedom says, do your own thing. Have it your own way. Jesus says, freedom is enjoying living in an unceasing relationship with the God who created us. Freedom is enjoying fulfillment in life by obeying God's will. Some have said freedom is achieving your full potential in Christ to the glory of God. And I found in my life that the more truth I know and the more I obey it and follow it, the more I gain freedom. You know, it's amazing to have a very fast sports car. And it would be fun for about 20 seconds to drive it off a cliff and enjoy that experience (laughs) of flying. But guess what? The impact will kill you. And that's the thing. We think freedom is without boundaries, but there are boundaries. You know, when, I drove, when we rode up Pikes Peak, there are some places, not all, that have guardrails. They're there for the reason. And so freedom has boundaries. The Bible teaches us that the Word of God is a boundary to provide life, to provide protection from heartaches and consequences, and uh, to provide all the things we need in this life. 
And that's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Sin enslaves, but Jesus and truth bring deliverance, for example, to Noah and Lot, as we talked about last week. And then fake freedom provides enslavement. Enslavement. Second Peter 2.20, it says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Let me say that again. The last state has become worse for them than the first. I just want to be clear here in this section of Scripture, we're reading that Peter, when he uses the word they, he's talking about false teachers. They had a superficial faith, a religious experience of some kind, but they sank back to their old sinful ways over time. And Peter is making a distinction between those who are true possessing Christians, those who possess Christ, than those who profess Christ like the false teachers. It says they are entangled once again in what they thought they had the power over. The problem is the power they're using is their will and their human strength and not that of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's interesting, the last state has become worse than the first. It implies that there are degrees of punishment in hell, that they are going to suffer the worst punishment. And it's hard for us to understand. We don't have anything to go on to tell us what that looks like, but it's unimaginable what they will face. Peter's saying it would have been better for them in the judgment if they were ignorant of God's truths and the gospel versus having been made aware of the gospel and God's truth and rejecting it. They will face a more severe judgment. Warren Wiersbe said, even the bondage that sin creates is deceitful for the people who are bound actually think they are free. Too late they discover that they are prisoners of their own appetites and their habit. I was going to put a picture up here today and I forgot, but have any of you ever played with a Chinese finger trap? You know what I'm talking about? I used to get that when I was a kid and I'd sit there and the more you struggle against it, the more your fingers are entrapped. The more they talk about uh, freedom, the more enslavement it brings. The Quaker leader Rufus Jones, paraphrasing Aristotle, said the true nature of a thing is the highest that it can become. Jesus Christ frees us to become our very best in this life and then to be like him in the next. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, speaking about the last state is worse than the first. He gives an example in a parable. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last day that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. You see, temporary reformation without true repentance and rebirth only leads to greater sin and judgment. We could clean up the outside, but it really, you have to get to the inside and work from the inside out to change things. That's why it means the regeneration, the transformation in the heart. Sinful tendencies do not disappear when a person reforms. They can merely hibernate and get stronger over time. Holiness is not simply refusing to do evil things, for even an unsaved person to an extent can practice self-control. True holiness is more than conquering temptation. It is conquering even the desire to disobey God. 
That's what holiness is. It's not seeing how close we can get to the edge and to the world. It's how can we get further away and how can we be more like Christ? One pastor said when his doctor told him to lose weight, he said, I'll tell you what to do, the doctor said. Learn to hate the things that aren't good for you. And he said it worked. He lost weight. We have to name sin the same way God does and we have to learn to hate it. So our application is this. Freedom without God's boundaries takes one deeper and deeper into slavery of sin. Freedom without God's boundaries. We have liberty. Paul talks about those liberties. We have freedom in Christ, but we also have to keep those in the boundaries and the parameters that God has given us, because after all, he is our manufacturer, he's our maker, and he knows how best we can live in this life. The last major point is fraudulent experiences. Fraudulent experiences. They claim to have had a religious experience. In 2 Peter 2.21, for it would have been better for them never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. They had a phony conversion. Peter is repeating what he said here in verse 19. Notice the reiteration here for emphasis. In verse 21, we see the reference to what Christians were called at that time, the way. He says here, the way of righteousness. And always, always remember that Christianity is a sect of Judaism, that without Judaism, we wouldn't have Christianity. The Judaism was the means and the way that God brought the gospel to uh, us today, the, the Jews, the, the Gentiles, and anyone else in this world. These false teachers did have some kind of religious experience, but they're not born again. And if you want a reference point, just read Matthew 13, the four soils. They all received the seed. Some, the birds came and took it. Others got involved in the cares of this world and it didn't take root. But the good soil, the one who's truly born again, it took root and grew and provided a harvest. Phony conversion, but also a preference for sin. The last verse we'll read today in 2 Peter 2 as we finish this chapter he says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. I hope you all ate breakfast today. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after watching herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Pretty grotesque illustration there. Peter's quoting from Proverbs 26.11. These false teachers profess Christ, but don't possess him or the divine nature that comes at salvation, which is the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.4. What's it saying here in this proverb? Dogs are cleaned up on the inside temporarily when they vomit. Now, these weren't pampered pets like we have today. These were ravenous dogs that roamed all over the city, and they lived in the garbage dump trying to find food. Remember the Jews called Gentiles dogs in the Old Testament. And then pigs, they can be cleaned up on the outside temporarily, but soon they return naturally to the mud. The application here is the evidence in how these false teachers live reveals who they really are. You need to know how they are living out the things, the things that they espouse to believe in their own lives, not just in the followers' lives, but in their own lives. Do they practice what they preach? The bottom line of chapter 2 is this. Satan is the ultimate counterfeiter. False teachers start out having a false experience. And I will say that many of them, many of them start out well. And many of them, I think, uh, have pure motives. 
But somewhere along the line, something happens and they stray away into false teachings. They share a false gospel. Galatians 1, Paul warned against this. Paul warned strongly. He says, I'm astonished that you, Galatian believers, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned, he was saying. And as, as, he, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Notice the emphasis Paul has there. They preach a false gospel. They become false ministers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Sadly, as I stand here today and preach to you, there are people in pulpits that unknowingly and unwittingly are being used to teach people the false gospel, the false way of life. And Satan is the one behind all of that. These false teachers produce fake believers and followers. Notice Paul, he's going to give you a litany here of all the things he's going through. He says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, I'm in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. And then he adds danger from false brothers. He had to contend with all that as he went and ministered and planted churches. So our key thought as we close today is this, Christ followers must be discerning fruit inspectors of those who profess to teach in Jesus' name. You've got to know the word. And we'll talk about it as we get to the end of this book to give you some things to help you to make sure you are a discerning Christian. But know that we have to be discerning. And the first place to start is to get into God's word. Here's some questions to ponder this week as we think about this hard, difficult teaching from 2 Peter. First of all, can you spot those who are teaching false truths? I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot of different people out in the culture and the media, but I listen to a lot of Christian things. And I, I'm not saying it's because I'm a pastor. I think you've all experienced this, but when you hear false teaching, all of a sudden the radar goes up, right? And all of a sudden you want to hear more and you hope this person is going to define more of what they are talking about so you get a real taste of what it is. Can you spot those who are teaching false truths? Second of all, how can you sharpen your tools of discernment? What are the things you need to do to do that? And how will you point out the errors of false teaching? We have a responsibility that when we're in the midst of a group and they're hearing false teaching, it needs to be spoken about and pointed out because we don't want people to fall into the error of the ways. Hard teaching today, but 2 Peter gives us a warning. And we'll see next week at the beginning of the message some of the things that are going on in our evangelical world that are causing people to stray away. And some of that has to do with COVID and where people were looking for spiritual truths when they were home and not unable to be out in the culture.
But for today, let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has any spiritual needs. If there's anybody here under the sound of my voice that needs to surrender their life to Christ, to trust in the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, that we're all sinners, that we can't save ourselves, and that as we repent and turn away from our sin and turn to you and trust in the finished work of Christ as we sang about earlier in this service, that we can have the hope of eternal life because you rose from the dead. If there's someone who has a need today, I pray they would talk to me or one of the elders. And Lord, I pray for anybody else that has spiritual needs, that needs prayer today, that they would stop us out in the lobby and, or in connect group and pray for them. But Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to be uh, wise as doves and be able to understand the truth so that we can spot the counterfeits and help our families to not fall into false teachings that will lead them away from Christ. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.